0: Awesome. Thank you, Ben. Um, my name's Eben, if you haven't met me already. Um, I'm a student here, second year, and I'm studying engineering. And it's my honor and my privilege, I would say, to do the, read the Bible passage with you guys today. So if you want, it'll be in your booklet. Um, I don't know what page, page two, I suppose. But if you want to check and follow along with me, I'll be reading from 2, one, two Corinthians 5, verse 14 to 21. So if you'll follow with me. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God.
1: Thanks, Eben. Uh, My name's Tim. It's great to be with you. Um, I think you'll find it helpful to have that open as the Bible passage on the left hand side and an outline of where we're going on the right hand side. At Easter, we remember, celebrate two events that happened about 2,000 years ago. Around 30 AD, on Friday, Jesus was crucified and died. On the Sunday, his grave was empty. People saw him alive again. Our focus today is actually more on the first bit, Good Friday, the day that Jesus was crucified. Now, what happened that day is actually pretty straightforward. Uh, it, it's agreed by friend and foes of Christianity, by historians, all historians, as far as I know, of that period uh, that Jesus died. Jesus was a man who went around Galilee, Palestine, uh, in the time of Tiberius Caesar, doing good, healing people, teaching. But he upset the religious and political leaders of the Jewish nation. They arrested him under cover of darkness, hastily, convened some courts and tried him, found him guilty of treason and blasphemy, and sentenced him to death, just a move of political expediency. They pressured the Roman governor Pilate into carrying out the execution. He was tortured. He was crucified on a cross till he was dead. His body was taken down and buried. It was more an officially sanctioned lynching than than justice. The the cruel murder of an innocent man. One of those terrible tragedies that history is littered with. And yet Christians call it Good Friday. Is that bizarre? And the symbol, the universal symbol of Christianity is what? What do we put on our buildings? What do Christians wear on crosses around their necks? Sorry, on chains around that. It's a cross, isn't it? If you thought how weird that is... Because the cross was what was used to execute criminals. Now, the equivalent today would be to put a gallows up on the top of your building, wear an electric chair on a chain around your neck. Your friends would think you're gone balmy, wouldn't they? Why would Christianity have the cross as a symbol? Well, if you find that weird, I'm really glad you're with us today because I want to try and make sense of that for us. Why would this event from 2,000 years ago Be something that Christians celebrate as Good Friday. Well, looking at the passage in front of us from a letter written by an early Christian leader, Paul, about 55 AD, 25 years after the actual events. He explains how he understands that death. He says that first sentence, Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. Notice he, he's convinced. This isn't just a, something he thought up while he was having a dream one night. He, he's reviewed the facts and the evidence and he's come to a settled conviction, a reasoned response. He understands that one died for all. The one he means, he's talking about, is obviously Jesus. He died. That, that's a historical fact. Jesus died. But he also gives us a meaning He died for all. His death is somehow connected, not just to a few individuals, but to us, for all. It's not just an interesting fact from ancient history. It's not just another human life tragically cut off by death. That's happened to billions of people in history, hasn't it? It isn't even just a painful death. Millions and millions have died like that. It isn't merely an unjust death, maybe the death of a martyr. That's happened to hundreds of thousands of people. But he says Jesus died for us, for all. Uh, To die for someone is to die in their place, to die uh, uh, on their behalf. You know, like somebody who uh, dives into the surf because somebody's drowning and they rescue them, but in the process they lose their life. And we'd say, they died for them. It's that sort of idea that is being communicated. Jesus died for all, not just the people who were there that day, who did him in, not just a few people in some parts of history, but for all, for us. For me, for you. But you might rightly ask, what does Jesus dying 2,000 years ago have to do with you and me? Well, he, he unpacks that in verse 15, the second sentence. He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. It's because we've been living for ourselves. That's why Jesus died for us. Now, a bit of a spoiler alert at this point. I'm going to say some things that you might find confronting. You might find even insulting. Can I say I'm saying them just as much about me as about you? I don't know you. I know me. And what I'm saying is more true of me as far as I know than it is of you. But I'm going to say it anyway. Now, what is your reaction to the Bible accusing you of living for yourself? I think somebody would say, hold on a minute, Tim. I do stuff for other people. I, I help my family. I I, I, I I, loyal to my friends. But they're my friends, aren't they? <laughs> they're my family. It's still me in the end. Or your reaction might be, yes, of course I live for myself. That's what everyone does, isn't it? What's your problem with it? I remember sitting around chatting to a group of students and one of those sort of late-night conversations and we got on to, what are you going to do with your life? And it was fascinating that the range of things that people wanted to do with their lives. One wanted to become an accountant. Can you believe that? Because he saw it as the best way, the quickest way to get enough money to travel to all the places he wanted to travel to in the next 40 years of his life. Another one wanted to be a surgeon, to to be able to cut people open and repair their bodies and do amazing things with knives and stitches and that sort of stuff. One said, I just want to have lots of kids. They, she got some unusual looks from the others, but she did. She, she, that, that's what she thought would fulfil herself. Amazing range of things, but it, it, one of the, the guys in the group said, I wonder what's similar to all the things we want to do. And somebody else put their finger on it really quick. They said, we all want to get out of life as much as we can. Yeah, that, that's the normal approach to life, isn't it? But the critical question is, who for? It's for me, isn't it? It's for you. That is the way we live. Living for ourselves is default. It's, it's as normal and natural as breathing, isn't it? We all just do it. The world operates on the assumption that everyone is living for themselves. We recently had a, a state election where you got to vote. How many of you voted for the first time? Yeah, a few of you. OK, great. I'm glad you're doing it. But did you notice that as people tried to persuade you to vote for them... They always told you what was in it for you. You vote for me, this is what you'll get. This is how you'll be better off. They know that we live for ourselves. I've very rarely heard a politician say, listen, if you vote for me and I get in, you'll be worse off, but some of the poor people in the country will be better off. That doesn't fly, does it? Capitalism, that's our, our economic system. Capitalism assumes that we all live for ourselves, that you will do what's in your best economic interest. Socialism, which says the opposite, we hope that you'll actually behave in a way that's better for other people," has shown itself to fail dismally. It, it, it's good, but it doesn't work. Of course we live for ourselves. It, it's normal living for ourselves, but it's ugly, isn't it? It's damaging the greed in us that tramples over other people, the slander that comes from our lips or from our keyboards onto Facebook that slanders other people and, and wrecks their reputation. It, it actually hurts people. I met somebody last week. His family emigrated from China to Australia just before he started high school, went to the local public high school. And I asked him, did you experience any racism at school? And you can actually see his face drop as he remembered how he'd been treated. He said, yeah, all the time. It wasn't just the playground. That was bullying. Even in the classroom, there was racism all the time. That's just a normal high school. Why does that happen? Because we're living for ourselves, isn't it? It's not hard to diagnose what the real problem is. It's just selfishness. Selfishness of heart. And what happens in the school playgrounds, it's not just the racism, it's that living for self and self-gratification that leads to the sexual assaults and degradation that's just coming out all over the place at the moment, that that's been the normal experience. One in six girls in our culture experiences sexual assault before the age of 15. And it's horrendous, isn't it? Why is it happening? Well, lots of reasons, but at heart it's because we live for ourselves, But you might say, it's okay, Tim, it doesn't hurt anybody. Can I suggest that's being naive? Of course it hurts people. Think of the hurts that you've experienced. Isn't it because people have been living for themselves? That's just the way it comes when you live for yourself. How does God respond to us living for ourselves? Well, he hates it. He hates it firstly because we damage other people that he cares about but also because of the way we treat him. See, if I live for myself, I'm pretending I'm God, that the universe revolves around me, as it should. And in doing so, I ignore the true and living God, treating him like a block of wood. See, God created everything, including me and you. He he owns us. I didn't create myself. Like, if I did create myself, maybe it'd be okay to live for myself, but I I didn't. It's sort of like a, a child ignoring their parents. So imagine you're the parent of a teenage child. You can sort of imagine that, can't you? Because it's just swapping situations with them. And imagine your children, your teenagers, let's say they're boys for the moment, because that sort of works more... It's easy to imagine, isn't it? That they live in your home. They enjoy everything that you provide for them, the food, they they make your bed for you, they do the washing for you, and you expect that to happen day after day after day. But you totally ignore them. You never speak to them. You treat them like they don't exist, except for what they do for you. If you were that parent, would you be happy? I presume not. I presume you'd say, this has got to change. Either you reform, you you change, or you're out of here. This can't keep going forever. And that's what we do with God, isn't it, when I live for myself, I enjoy all the benefits of his creation, the air that I breathe, the food that I eat, the friends that I have, all, all provided by God. But I totally ignore him. I pretend I'm God. Living for myself is ugly and wrong. And we see God's reaction to that. What's God's reaction to me living for myself? Well, verse 14, that first sentence, he sent his son to die for all and therefore all died. Now, that's a bit of a logical jump. He died for all, therefore all died. Because I look around here and most of you don't look dead. Maybe a bit bored. Some of you are stressed out because you've got a mid-sem coming up soon. Somebody actually walked out because you've got a mid-sem coming up at two o'clock. You don't look dead. What? what does he mean? Let me try and explain it. Just come with me for a moment. If I want to live for myself, independent of God, God basically says to me, well... Okay, go ahead if you want to do that. Have life without me. But what is life without God and what he provides? It's death, isn't it? You can't live without what God provides. You die. I die. I deserve to die. But in the love for me and for you so rich and deep that my feeble brain can't grasp it, God took my sentence on himself in the person of Jesus. Jesus died For me, Jesus died for all of us. He explains it in the very last sentence. 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me try and explain it with a little prop. See this? Anybody seen these before? You can put lots of video on these. Okay. So imagine that on this disc is recorded my life. Everything I've done. Everything I've thought it got inside my brain. You know, it's one of those video cameras that can actually see what you're thinking. And it's all been recorded on there. Me living for myself. Now, if that is my record, I'd actually like it that you don't see it. That this is not streamed live on Facebook somewhere. I'd like it to remain private, okay? Because I'm actually ashamed of it. Not only that, I know God is totally unhappy with that. And so if this is me, that that disc, that video stands between me and God. And this is Jesus. And we know that Jesus, even his best friends say, his video is totally clean and right. There's nothing between him and his father. And what verse 21 is saying, he who had no sin became sin. This was put on him. He took it all. And he died the death that I deserve. There's an exchange. He gets my evil, my sin, my living for myself and suffers the consequences. And I get his rightness, what he did good. So what now is between me and God? Nothing. That's what verse 21 is describing. Jesus' death was my death, your death. But notice what that means. It means that God's verdict on my selfish life stands. God didn't say, it's okay, Tim, I I don't really mind what you're doing. Just carry on and and it'll be okay in the end. No, God sentenced me to death. And that sentence was carried out 2,000 years ago on a hill outside Jerusalem when Jesus died. One died for all, therefore all died. I died. Do you know what God's verdict on your life is? Many people are unsure of that. They, they think, I, I sort of hope that God will maybe be happy with me. In the end, it'll, it'll all weigh up and I hope, fingers crossed, it'll be okay. But if Jesus died for all, then you know exactly what his verdict on my life is. His verdict is, Tim, you deserve to die. And you did. I carried out the sentence. Jesus bore my sentence. And so in Jesus' death, that historical event, it makes crystal clear what my life deserves. Death. But it also makes crystal clear that God is for me. Despite how I've treated him, God loves me and you. It's both confronting and comforting. It's condemning and liberating. It's insulting, highly insulting and affirming. If Christ died on that hill outside Jerusalem, if he died for all, then both those things are true, inescapably true. And if you recognise those two realities, it sort of changes everything. Verse 15, he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. If Christ died my death, my life of selfishness died, it was executed. I can't go on living that life anymore, can I? It. That, Tim, died. To keep living for myself is to—it's as dumb as living for Ned Kelly or Elvis. They're, they're dead. Well, if I'm not going to live for me, who am I going to live for? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Live for Jesus. <laughs> he made me and owns me. He died to rescue me. He's bought me. And he's the risen Lord of the universe. He, he's big enough to live for. I'm not. And so it means I, I need to start a new life. Christ died for us that Good Friday because we all need his death to rescue us. And Christ died that Good Friday because he loved us. He willingly gave his life to rescue us. And if you start to get that, you start to see why Christians call it Good Friday, don't you? But if you understand it, you also see that Jesus' death sort of contains an appeal to us. In the second last sentence, verse 20, Paul says, we're therefore Christ's ambassadors, speaking for Jesus, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Reconciliation, do you understand what that is? You know, when two friends have a fight and then they they work out how to make up. They become friends again. That's to be reconciled. In the death of Jesus, God is appealing to us and saying, let's be friends. Because friends is what God is after. He's not after good moral enemies. He's not after people who say, well, if you stay out of my life, I'll stay out of your life. Cold distance. Now, God has done everything to make it possible for us to be friends with him. We're outlaws, living for ourselves. But Jesus paid the penalty, did the time in our place. And so his death says, come clean. There's no music to face if you do. But God actually goes further. He begs us to be reconciled to him. Do you see that in verse 20? We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, as if God is down on his knees in front of you saying, come on, let's be friends. Darren was a psych student here at UWA. He came to a meeting like this one Easter. I'd never met him before. He came up to me afterwards and he said, with this sort of beam on his face, he said, I never realised that I could be friends with God. That God wants me as his friend. That was the day that changed his life. Now, at this point, the most foolish and insulting thing you could do is turn your back on God. Turn your back on Jesus' death. Have you ever heard of a waftan? You know about FOMO and Starbo and those sort of things, don't you? Well, let me introduce you to the idea of a waftan. I was introduced to it by some friends of mine who played in a band. And I had the rare privilege of being a roadie one time. Uh, They were playing a gig actually up in Uni Hall. And so we, we carted all the gear in and we set it up, connected it all, did the sound check and everything. And we waited. And we waited. And finally two people came. And we waited. And no one else came. And we called it quits. And we repacked the gear. And as we were hauling the gear back out to the van... The lead singer said, Well, that was a waft tan. I said, What do you mean? He said, A waste of flame and time and money. That's what it was. We shouldn't have bothered. Well, is that what Jesus' death is? Because I think many people treat Jesus' death as a waft tan. Nothing to do with me. I'd prefer him not to have died, actually. And so when you front up to God on the last day and God says, Well, you lived it for yourself, I see. You might say, well, I thought that was okay," And I presume God will say something like this. Of course it was not okay. I sent my son to die for you. What are you going to say then? You can say, God, that was a pretty stupid thing to do. I hope not. Now, sorry to be so blunt, but if you walk out of here today saying or thinking, I'm just going to carry on living for myself, then you're saying Jesus' death was the biggest waftam in history. It wasn't just a bit of time and money. It was his own death. It was just a waste. So, what will you do? I know that many of you personally own Jesus died for all, including me, including you. I know that many of us think a Good Friday is a good day. There's something wonderful to celebrate in the midst of the pain and tragedy. Can I say, please, have a great Easter? It's wonderful to have a time of the year each year where where we get to remember that and have it sort of soak around us again, thrilled that God wants you to be his friend and to know that you are. But there might be some here who are really unsure, not yet convinced that one died for all. Can I suggest to you the only sensible thing to do is explore that, like Dan did? He explored it. Is there any substance to this? Is it fake news or is it reality? And we'd love to help you do that. But there might be some here today who've realised that Jesus died for you. And you've heard the appeal, God begging you, be reconciled to me. You want to be forgiven and be friends with God. Well, how? How do you do that? Well, it's like any friendship. You talk, that's what you do. And you see in the box at the bottom of the page, just the sort of thing you might say to God. I'll just read it. Lord God, I want to be friends with you. I'm sorry that I've been living for myself and ignoring you. Please forgive me. Thank you for sending Jesus to die my death for me so I can be forgiven. And please help me to live for Jesus from now on. It's pretty simple, isn't it? They're not magic words. But I want to give you a chance. We'll just have a moment of silence where if that is what you want to say to God or something like it, please say it. In your own heart, don't don't need to say it aloud. God knows what you're thinking. Just say it. Just take a moment of silence. Can I assure you that if you have prayed that to God, he's heard you. He's forgiven you. And you've started a new life. And we want to help you in that new life. You should have got this little feedback slip as you came in. Can I indulge you for one minute to scratch around, find a pen. I know you've got one hidden in your bag somewhere. Or the friend next to you has. And just fill it out. Go to the boxes at the bottom. And tick, I, tick the one I enjoyed or didn't enjoy. If we all tick that one, it's nice, isn't it? And cross off the bit that isn't relevant. If you didn't enjoy it, then cross off enjoyed. If you did, cross off didn't If you want to investigate further, tick the next box. If you actually prayed that to God for the first time today, tick the third box. Any comments or questions we'd love to to, uh, help you with, then please write them down on the front or the back. And if, if you tick the second or third box or the fourth, then it'd be really helpful just to have a name and a way of contacting you, maybe a mobile number. We'll treat that with courtesy because we want to treat you with courtesy. And Eunice will tell us what to do with these. Thank you.